Hello and welcome. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Bernard Borofsky, an emeritus professor of philosophy from Columbia University, who in his career has explored topics such as free will, determinism, liberation, autonomy, and creativity. Bernard is an exceptional philosophical thinker, and his devotion to the pursuit of knowledge and truth is an inspiring one. This conversation was a deep dive into the mind of an analytic philosopher. In some parts, we explored the deeper philosophical arguments around these ideas, and in others, we spoke about how they can be related and applied to our everyday lives. First of all, you might be asking yourself, what is this idea of free will and determinism? What is the big dilemma here? Well, this is a huge question that has been occupying philosophers for ages, and it asks, Do we, as humans, have free will over our choices? Or is the universe we live in already predetermined, which would mean that everything that ever was and ever will be is like a play with a clear script that's just waiting to play out? And in this predetermined world, the choices we feel we have full control over are just an illusion and are actually a result of all of these different forces unfolding. Now, there are different schools of thought around this matter. Some philosophers are incompatibilists, meaning they believe that we can't have both free will and determinism. It must be either or. Of these, we have the determinists, who are adamant about there being no free will whatsoever, and that if we do have any feeling of being able to freely make decisions in our lives, this is simply an illusion. Other philosophers believe that nothing is determined and that everything is up for grabs, so to speak, that we are free, autonomous agents, able to freely make decisions and to control our own fates. Professor Borofsky, on the other hand, is a compatibilist. He believes that free will and determinism can coexist. Certain things about our world and our existence are indeed determined. However, we still have quite a bit of free will that allows us to actively participate in the shaping of our destinies. So now, I'll leave it to Professor Borofsky to explain the rest. Stay tuned and enjoy. I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while, and I'm happy that we got a chance to sit down and speak today. We have with us Professor Bernard Borofsky, and today we're going to talk about this idea, this question of free will and determinism. Now, one of the questions that you have been most prominently interested in in your career has been how do free will and determinism relate to one another? And I specifically say relate because you are of the school of thought that free will and determinism don't have to be free will versus determinism, that they can coexist. So I'd like to get into this idea of compatibilism on the one hand, but first let's start from the beginning. I'd like to know, before even you got into this whole question of free will and determinism, 
How did you become interested in philosophy? Where did that spark begin? Okay, uh, first, uh, let me begin by thanking you for asking me. I've really been looking forward to this. I initially didn't think that it would be quite as valuable an experience for me as it's turning out to be. So if I may just say a few words before answering your question, it turns out that it was um, almost a transformative experience to be forced to think about the question that you posed to me as we would be doing here, namely providing some kind of overview of the work that I've done throughout my life, my philosophical output. I'm trained as a philosopher in the vaguely analytic tradition, and we guys are not used to looking at <laughs> the bigger picture, to use the label that we're working under here. I do work here, and then I go on in the next years to do work here, etc. And I don't see any big picture, but now you've forced me to look at it. And I found something quite surprising, quite fascinating personally to me that I had never noticed. And you're going to think that there's something wrong with me for failing to have noticed it. But here it is. I've had two major philosophical thoughts in my life, just two. And both of them came to me kind of suddenly. It's not as if I had not unconsciously been ruminating about things that led to this uh, insight, but there was definitely this experience, yes, this is what I want to say. And this happened twice in my life, as I said. Once, I even remember where it was. I was on leave in uh, Palo Alto at Stanford under an ACLS research and I remember having dinner one evening in San Jose, which is at the southern end of the bay, with my wife trying to explain to a non-philosopher what I had kind of come up with. This idea was eventually to form the basis for my the book I wrote for Oxford in 2012 called Nature's Challenge to Free Will. And when I was invited to be, well, I was the honoree at a symposium, a symposium in my honor at Columbia. So I, of course, gave the paper, the central paper, and I tried to consider what sort of title should I give the paper? And I gave the paper the title Freedom as Creativity. This encapsulated my thought that appeared in the book Nature's Challenges. Freedom is creativity. Keep that in mind when I tell you about the next idea I had. The idea appeared to me almost in a flash as a spatial metaphor. You think traditionally of autonomy as self-government, but if you think of that idea of the self-governing, what is a self? We think of this as a, a subject that's lying somewhere where the brain and mind are and it is uh, moving or governing the body. So it's kind of a longitudinal uh, relationship. But I felt that that's not at all what autonomy is. Autonomy is more of a 
horizontal kind of thing, a relationship between the person and the world in terms of that person's engagement, active, unfettered engagement with the world. We'll get into that in more detail later on. But that idea was to lead to this book I wrote on autonomy, which is called Liberation from Self. Now think about it. Liberation for autonomy, creativity for freedom. And it never occurred to me until I was forced to think about it that, hey, these two ideas must have something to do with one another. So I did begin to think how these two obviously related ideas really are related. But maybe I'd better save the elaboration of this in a bit before I, so I can at least go on to answer the question you raised, which, sure, sure. which was my background. I went to New York University as an undergraduate, which is in Washington Square, Greenwich Village. And this was in the late 1950s. It was a wonderful time to be there in this setting, in this environment. This was the era of the Beat Generation, uh, Jack Kerouac and uh, Allen Ginsberg and the coffee shop culture. And my sister and brother-in-law opened up a coffee shop of their own in the village. And um, they tried to do it with a French twist. And this was the setting in which I went to school, studied under wonderful teachers, wonderful philosophy teachers at NYU, one of whom I got to be very close with. They all were accessible, but one I was particularly friendly with. And we continued our friendship after I graduated. We were became tennis buddies, and I continued to see him for many years. And so I got a very good grounding, and it, that attracted me to philosophy. By the time I was at the end of the sophomore year, I pretty well knew I was going to major in philosophy. And I was particularly drawn to the free will problem, and I knew I wanted to spend many years, apparently my whole life, thinking about it and related ideas like autonomy and mental causation, causation in general, etc. And after my undergraduate days, I went on to Columbia, which was a very different experience. As an undergraduate, there's a kind of carefree uh, feeling you can have exploring things. And it was wonderful to Really, it was a true intellectual opening up to be there. I came from a very insular environment as growing up as a, in elementary and high school and going to NYU, meeting people from all over the world, uh, just really along with the wonderful courses, the subjects, history, literature, philosophy, they just all attracted me greatly. And it was a wonderful experience. When I got to Columbia, it's a different story because now I'm entering into a profession. I'm starting out the first stages here. I did very well as an undergraduate. My teachers liked me, but now I'm with a, a lot of other students who went through the same experience. Uh, they're all very intelligent, have done very well. And now we're, in a sense, in a more competitive kind of semi-professional kind of relationship. So it wasn't as much fun, but I did have a wonderful graduate education, 
And um, that's basically the background. So I want to ask, you know, about free will and the arguments that Uh, you became exposed to that you wanted to wrestle with and that didn't, the things that seemed right to you and the things that didn't seem quite satisfactory. But before we get into that, I'm interested in this experience of going into graduate school and the more competitive nature. And I wanted to ask, just as an aside, do you feel that that competitive nature and that more kind of professional setting, did you feel like it encouraged your creativity or was there something in that that was hindering it perhaps? I don't think it suppressed it or hindered it in any way. It made me work harder. And I guess if I I worked harder, I uh, got to be more comfortable with the ideas that I was struggling with. So when you were first exposed to these ideas of free will and determinism, what specific arguments did you come across that you found unsatisfactory, that you wanted to do better work in that direction? Well, I was uh, entering the study of philosophy at a time when many people thought the free will problem was more or less solved. There was a um, almost a complete acceptance of a general point of view, which we call compatibilist. Free will and determinism are compatible. That's a surprise, I think, to some non-philosophers who tend to think of it as one or the other. The idea was a pretty natural idea. Uh, After all, we want it to be the case that if we act or decide in a certain way, that we do so on the basis of our desires or values. They are the ones that cause us to act in a certain way. I do this because I want this. Where is the element of unfreedom there? This is sort of, I'm presenting the compatibilist line. I'm not compelled. There's within this tradition the thought, genuinely right, correct thought, that there's a difference between causation and compulsion or coercion. And to be caused by your own desires to do something is not being forced to do it. So I could have done the other thing if I had wanted to. That's what freedom amounts to. And it's nice, simple, neat, and all that. That idea ran up against, and it became much, the um, counter view became uh, much more prominent after mid-century into the 1960s, etc., when a lot of philosophers raised the obvious point You may be free in the sense that you're acting because you want to do something or because you want to express your values or you're acting because you have a commitment. But what about the desire or the value itself? Where did that come from? Surely you want to consider the possibility, not just could you have acted differently, but could you have chosen differently? Could you have had a different desire, a different value? Weren't those desires and values and inclinations themselves the product of factors that you had nothing to do with? You did not produce your genes, your early environment. 
So that there's that traditional kind of argument that you don't have free will because you don't have control over the very forces that you cite when you explain your actions. And then this idea that was reinforced by a very famous argument that appeared in mid-1960s, which is called the consequence argument, and it goes like this. It's really very simple to state. Free will is incompatible with determinism because, consider, imagine the world at a time before your birth. Let's take 1900 as just any old year. Now, consider what is the state of the world in 1900. What if you had a complete description of the entire world at that moment, 1900, January 1st, 1900? You had every fact about every particle in the whole universe in 1900. Now, clearly, you have no power to change that. There's nothing you can do now to change the state of the world in 1900. Obviously, no problem there. Consider adding to that the all the laws of nature. Imagine a conjunction of all the laws of nature. Now, as laws of nature, you do not have any control over them. They regulate the world, our lives, and whatever the laws are, you have no way of changing them. So I cannot change the state of the world in 1900. I was never around then. I cannot change the laws of nature. I cannot alter the laws of nature. They are what they are. What does determinism say? It says that the laws of nature conjoined with the state of the world at a certain time enables you to deduce, to infer the exact state of the world at any future time. So it follows necessarily from the laws that you can't control, the state of the world that you can't control, that you're going to do something tomorrow. I mean, suppose it's uh, today you're trying to decide, am I going to go to law school or graduate study in philosophy? You're deliberating about this. Well, if determinism is true and the laws and the state of the world at an earlier time imply that you're going to, let's say, go to law school, then you're going to go to law school, and there's nothing you can now do to make it otherwise. So you do not have free will, you do not have power over the future. That's the nub of the argument. Right. And this model, free will is almost like an illusion, really, if you have a sense of free will. If free will is the a power to make something the case that was not the case, then you don't have that. I sometimes call it counterfactual power. Think about right. it this way. You face a decision between A and B, you act in favor of A, and your sense of power is that you could just as easily have done B. So it's you have the power to do something or make something the case that in fact was not the case. Right. You were presented with a field of possibilities, with options, and you had a sense of picking one of those options out of the list of options that you had and this sense of feeling that you could have chosen otherwise. Yes, exactly. You could have chosen otherwise. But that's an illusion, according to 
the incompatibilist. Now, what's kind of interesting is that many philosophers who had kind of lazily accepted the simple compatibilist line that, of course, we have free will. I can do, look, I could have picked that up. I didn't, but I could have. I wasn't compelled to do what I did, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of lazy compatibilism was now under challenge from this incompatibilist point of view. There appeared on the scene, interestingly enough, two philosophers, two brilliant philosophers who posed a way of rethinking of what freedom is that enabled it to be salvaged independently of that consequence argument. They said it's not really a challenge to our freedom once we rethink what freedom is. What these philosophers did is to place as central to the idea of free will, the idea of moral responsibility. After all, we uh, oftentimes want to hold people morally responsible for things, and we look to see whether they acted freely and feel that if they weren't, then they would not be morally responsible. But let me just take one of these. Uh, This is Harry Frankfurt. P.F. Strawson is the other one we'll put to one side. Now, Frankfurt, as I said, underplayed power for the sake of what he felt is important for moral responsibility. Imagine a person who is a terrible human being and he comes upon his neighbor. He doesn't like the color of his neighbor's eyes and he decides to kill him. You just imagine the worst possible human being. Now, uh, surely we want to hold a person morally responsible. Here he was. He had these awful motives. He led. He was not compelled, etc. So now you come along with your idea. Well, he had to be free in the sense of he could have done otherwise. He had the power to do otherwise. But Frankfurt asks the interesting question. Why is that important? Think about it. The question really should be, what would this guy do if he had the power to do otherwise? Suppose it turns out that he would have done exactly the same thing. Suppose um, you magically confer on him the power to refrain from killing his neighbor. And he says, well, I still want to kill my neighbor. I don't care what I have the power to do. So this is the basis of Frankfurt's underplaying of the significance of power. Right. I think that's an important note to make that there is a moral implication of this idea, right? We might be asking ourselves, you know, free will and determinism, how do these things relate? To our lives, but there's something in how we structure our belief system and whether or not we believe that we have freedom and responsibility or whether everything is determined and we are just kind of floating around in this. Well, sure. I think of um, Clarence Darrow as an example. Darrow had the wonderful skill of uh, going into a courtroom and using the same argument over and over, a very powerful argument, and getting a um, criminal charges reduced. I don't think he ever ever lost a uh, client, I mean, to the death penalty, because he could convince jurors that basically, there but for the grace of God go I. If I had his environment, if I had his genetic endowment, if I were thrust into that situation, I too would be powerless to do otherwise. So we're all lucky, those of us who end up not being criminals, 
because we're lucky to have whatever uh, background and environment uh, we happen to have, a fortunate one rather than an unfortunate one. Yes, in general, uh, we want to think that if I don't have the power to have acted differently, then you really should not blame me for my actions. You should not even praise me for my actions, mm-hmm. too. So, yes, these definitely do have implications. Here's something interesting about philosophers, not philosophy. Philosophers like me spend a lot of time thinking about this. But now, if you're thinking about this, you would suppose that there is some real basis for worry here. In other words, you imagine that you think that maybe determinism really is true. But I think a very strong case can be made, and I make it in some of my writings, that there is very little reason to believe that determinism is true. And there are a lot of reasons that I can give for that. But first, I want you to (laughs) reflect on the fact that here philosophers like me spend much of their lives trying to show that determinism, if it were true, would not threaten our freedom of will. But we don't actually think it's true. So in (laughs) fact, there really is no threat, at least that threat. There are other related threats, but there is not that threat. And my line of thinking here is really not different from most philosophers. Most philosophers, I feel, would agree with me. If you ask them just straight out, you're talking about freedom and determinism, you must be worried about determinism. I'm not worried about it. I don't think it's true. Or there's very little evidence. Now, I can elaborate on on why that is. Right, so you you don't think that determinism itself is true? And even if it were true... You still think that free will can exist. Yes, exactly. Okay, so why don't you think that determinism is true? Let's get into that. First of all, determinism has a grand history. It's taken a number of forms over the ages. The form that we implicitly are talking about, I would call scientific determinism. The kind of determinism that is based upon the universal laws based on the fact that everything in the world is acts in accordance with uh, natural laws. But this doctrine is relatively recent in intellectual history. You go back to the Greeks, for example, you have a form of determinism according to fates, the Omoira. You can go through to theological determinism, uh, determinism in which God is actually causing everything to happen. Now, we don't take those doctrines that seriously anymore, nor do we take the metaphysical version of the, the idea. I guess Leibniz would be the best illustration. The idea that everything that happens must have a sufficient reason for happening. That just seems a priori true. Now, Leibniz grounded it in, a, in God, but however it's grounded, I don't think we buy that any longer. When the electron goes through the slit in the famous quantum mechanical experiment, 
there really is no sufficient reason, at least I'm told by scientists, for it's going left or going right. There's nothing in the nature of it or anything else that makes it do one or the other. So I'm sorry, Mr. Leibniz, <laughs> we have no basis for a metaphysical kind of determinism. So what we're left with is scientific determinism, which actually dates back pretty much to uh, Pierre Laplace at the beginning of the 19th century, who was uh, so smitten by Newtonian mechanics that he uh, developed this idea of the world governed uh, in the same way that the laws of Newtonian mechanics govern mechanical systems. You know, the fact that Newton was able to show how the laws of celestial mechanics, the laws of mechanics on Earth, are joined in one grand system, led Laplace and others to generalize this, that eventually there will be one system of the world that will explain everything right. in, in the way that Laplace and this kind of conception of the universe is a very mechanistic one, right? It's mm-hmm. viewing the universe as this machine, almost like a well-tuned yes. clock yeah. where every everything that happens basically had, you know, another cog in the machine yeah. causing it right. in a sense. And such that an omniscient predictor could predict exactly what's going to happen if that predictor knew the laws and knew what the condition at any given time. Right, and that's a very kind of tidy view of the universe, but really this new quantum approach to things shows us that there is a little bit more randomness or less predictability in the universe. So things aren't so perfectly physically determined Mm -hmm. as in this machine-like universe. So why do I reject determinism as a plausible theory about the world. First of all, we know about quantum indeterminacy. And quantum mechanics has been around a long time now. You know, it won't be long before it'll be a century. And scientists, physicists seem perfectly comfortable, well, maybe not perfectly, but certainly comfortable as the most fundamental science. But other sciences find that they do not require deterministic laws. They are perfectly content, especially in the social sciences, with the stochastic laws, laws that are formulated in terms of statistical generalizations and not enabling you to make precise predictions. And if you look at psychology, psychology, I believe psychology has universal laws, but they're not very prominent or common. We think of psychology as a science of human behavior. But the fact is that uh, lots of psychology has concerned itself not with behavior, but with traits and other kinds of things that are studied. But another reason that there's a determinism represents a a serious or that determinism is, is highly implausible is simply the fact that any actual bit of human behavior actually has multiple and varied sources causal sources. I mean, for example, suppose I'm about to set out to do something and I meet somebody, you know, completely out of the blue, and this changes my orientation and I don't do what I, I was about to do. Or lightning strikes, or one of a million different possibilities. 
Is it really possible to suppose that these could all be coordinated into one super system that would permit universal predictability? Seems to me that that is highly unlikely. So this older picture of a a uniform system of the world, a picture that was promulgated by, among others, the rationalist philosophers, Spinoza being the most clear example of this, a geometrically based uh, universal theory, deterministic theory of the world. To be sure, the idea persisted into the 20th century. During um, uh, mid-20th century, there was a movement called unified science that sort of promulgated the same kind of Newtonian vision of a unified science, but that died out and has not reappeared. So there's this idea now that if things aren't perfectly determined, then what is causing or what, you know, if we have all of this randomness or things aren't so perfectly determined, what element is making things move in a certain direction? So for instance, in the slit experiment, you said there is no particular reason why the photons should go right or left. And some of the interpretations of that experiment called into question this idea of consciousness or the observer having some sort of influence. So I think in that same way, how consciousness can affect the physics around us, right? The movement of a photon in this uh, specific uh, situation. I think the same analogy could be made to our free will and our agency being able to participate in the natural order of things. So how do you see free will or our consciousness even? How do you see that aspect of ourselves and our being interacting with the world around us? As far as the uh, quantum mechanical uh, experiment and situation, it's really a very controversial matter. And there are some who reject the interpretation that the uh, phenomena are explained in part by the participants' involvement in what is going on. So I'm going to remain (laughs) agnostic about that. But going back to this idea of, uh, you know, our participation in the world and our, if we do have free will, then there is, there's an amount of decision that we can make. First of all, it should be stated at the outset that it's a truism that our freedom is extraordinarily limited. It's just a fact that we ourselves are themselves. Ourselves are created from non-selves, from a time when we were very young and were not even selves to begin with, but ourselves were formed, the structure of our mind, our mental life, our propensities, our desires, our feelings, they were all products. We we really have... um, very little control. We are limited physically in in millions of different ways. Uh, We are born with uh, physical limitations. We therefore have freedom, if we have freedom at all, within a very narrow sphere. It may be all the freedom that we need, 
But I mean, one should sort of put that to one side. Now, these uh, philosophers, many of them philosophers of science, are really almost deists. The deists were these thinkers uh, in the 18th century and somewhat earlier. Thomas Jefferson, by the way, was a deist. They believed that God created the world, gave it its laws, and then went home. Um, He did not interfere with the world thereafter. So I think that the idea of scientific laws as governing the world in accordance with laws that the universe had even before it began really harks back to to these uh, these philosophers. Although, yes, to be sure, they they dropped the idea of God, but it's the same uh, sort of metaphysical idea, which I see no reason for. The people who worry about the implications of determinism for free will have uh, this picture of the world as governed by universal laws. Now, the first criticism I have is with respect to the whole concept of governance, this idea that the natural laws govern the behavior of things is clearly a metaphor and a dangerous one at that. Mechanical objects are not governed by the laws. The laws describe what objects do. Similarly, psychology doesn't dictate that I do such and such as if I would be a bad boy if I violated the laws of psychology. That's a ridiculous idea. But there were a lot of philosophers of science who I think reinforced this idea. They have this idea that the world had laws before it ever began its history. There's a difference between the laws and history. So the laws are implanted, and then history has to act in accordance with those laws. It's just like the world is a legislative body. Lay down the laws, and now you'd better follow them. But that's not really the way it is, is it? What the laws are, after all, we investigate, we try to discover what the laws are. So we are discovering how things actually behave. We don't tell them how they must behave. Now, this would seem to be elementary, but I think this kind of mistake lies behind a lot of the worries that those who worry about determinism have. Now, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Just because I hold to a regularity theory of laws, one in which laws are not viewed as necessary truths, this does not mean that we can do anything that we want, that um, we are omnipotent, uh, that would be obviously ridiculous. Uh, there are many things that we can, cannot do. I cannot fly unaided, whatever. Now, how do I defend that, uh, given my view of laws? It's really quite simple. When we say that I can or cannot do anything, we're talking about whether or not my efforts would succeed were I to expend them. And um, if I, they, they would succeed, then I can. Otherwise, I cannot. So, again, I just uh, I'm pointing that out for fear of somebody um, adopting that misinterpretation. Now, let me just add one little point in case a, a philosopher, for some reason or another, happens to be listening to this. 
There are more things that need to be said here having to do with modalities and in particular the very tricky notion of can, but um, they appear in the book to which I would uh, refer you. So take the example of a sphere in which we hope we have a certain amount of freedom, say decision-making where I'm not being coerced, nobody's forcing me to do some, I'm aware of the options. There are a lot of background conditions that have to be in place. You know, I have to have knowledge. I have to have intelligence. I have to be aware of my options. I'm not being coerced, manipulated. You know, the ideal conditions here, and I'm going through deliberation designed to come up with a decision. And eventually I do come up with that decision. I regard that as an act of Here's where creativity comes, an act of creation. Because if you want to know how human beings make decisions, you have to actually study their actual decision-making. You are not dictating to them what to do. You are describing. So when I decide on something, and it turns out that Other people would have decided in exactly the same way, under the same conditions, that we happen to be similar. It doesn't mean that either of us was forced to do that. It simply means that we are beings who, under these conditions, do this sort of thing. If I had decided otherwise, then the laws of nature would be different. You see, it's the reverse on my compatibilist view. It's we who determine the laws of decision-making. It's not the world that determines them. You have to remember, why do scientists bother to study human beings? Because they want to know how they operate. They want to know what is the case. And they formulate generalizations based on their information. And they're, again, reporting what people do under certain conditions. This idea goes back to David Hume, basically, and is sometimes called the regularity theory, the idea that laws are certain kinds of very special regularities. In the recent uh, 10, 20 years, the idea was presented in a certain form by David Lewis. He called it the best systems analysis. Laws are those generalizations that are part of the best system. The best system is the system that is the most comprehensive and the simplest for describing the world. So it's that kind of idea that I think is crucial for laying to rest the worry that if it turned out that my decision was in accordance with a certain law, that therefore it was not also an act of my own creation when I made that decision. Right. When we look at laws of nature and think of them as laws, there is this element of coercion, right? right? We are coerced Mm -hmm. by the law. And there's this uh, quote, I believe it's by C.S. Lewis, where he said to say that a stone falls because it is obeying a law, makes it a man and even a citizen, right? In the yeah, sense- very good. Excellent. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> because it's very much our own metaphor and our own kind of projection on how we perceive the universe. But in what you're saying, there's 
it's not so much a law as it is a regularity of nature. And therefore, and also this descriptive element, it's the way we describe the world. It's not so much that the laws existed beforehand and made us do what we're doing. So in a sense, if we have this kind of new conceptualization of what the laws of nature are, we can dictate them to a certain degree, right? We can By what we do and how we decide. Right. And I think there's this, you know, very deep idea here of, you know, how as humans and with human consciousness, we're able to manifest things into reality. Mm-hmm. There's this very interesting relationship that we have, you know, with just by thinking of something. Right. And having all of these uh, deliberations and these ideas, these desires, we can manifest something into reality. And I think that, you know, speaks to this idea of freedom as creativity. We're Mm -hmm. able to create something in this world Mm -hmm. just from just from our ideas. Right. Yes, as uh, we say in Hebrew, uh, there is from nothing. Yeah. Uh, Two thoughts generated by your interesting uh, comments. First. Another way of looking at this regularity idea is that we will never really know what the laws are until, so to speak, the end of time, because we are constantly creating the laws as we go along. And anything we say now, any generalizations we say now, are open to uh, revision in the light of what we actually do in the future. The other thought that I I think is very important to bring out here, which is suggested by your linking of freedom with creative expression or subjectivity, although determinism is not a threat, there's something that is often confused with it. And I think when you use the term mechanism early on, Mm was suggested. This threat is what I'll I'll call reductionism. And that's a different kind of threat, because whether or not determinism is the case, reductionism is another matter. Reductionism is the idea that ultimately the laws of, I'll say this, I may have to revise it, the laws of psychology will ultimately be replaced by laws which explain our behavior and our mental life in terms of neuro or neurophysiological constituents. Right, that we would be able to basically reduce all of this psychological phenomena, our thoughts, our emotions, to electrical signals in the brain or neurochemical messaging. Yeah, and that's, as you can see, it's a different kind of worry because determinism does not at all preclude the possibility that the laws, I'll use the word governing, yeah. but you now know that that's a, a metaphor, metaphor. <laughs> that, that the laws governing our, our lives are, are laws about our decisions, that are decisions that are made uh, in order to uh, fulfill our desires or our ambitions, or express our feelings. What it used to be called, I noticed the word is not used very much anymore, folk psychology. And the worry is that folk psychology, well, 
let me start that sentence in another way. It would be ridiculous to suppose that psychology is going to, in some sense, mimic folk psychology, that the theory of explanation of behavior that psychologists eventually uh, form will look exactly like our common sense explanations of behavior in terms of desires and values and beliefs. But because we would expect that it be much more complicated. After all, you do have to recognize that so much of our decision-making goes on with a a non-conscious element of, for example, information processing with coding, a very important type of uh, phenomena in which uh, signals that come into our brain or mind are encoded as they travel through the nervous system, and then they are eventually decoded. And there's no doubt that much of this very wonderful work on brain-mind connections is going to be fruitful in terms of providing some kind of a structure underneath our conscious lives and sort of amplify the picture of ourselves as desiring and deciding and feeling and believing, etc., But the worry is with reductionism, not that the folk psychological description will be amplified and uh, systematized and quantified, but that it'll be really replaced by a completely unrecognizable new language Uh, neurophysiology. Right. Right. I'd like to speak to that a bit because this is something that also concerns me within the field of psychology because there is a lot of, you know, movement towards the direction of neuroscience and neurochemistry. And I think this field can really teach us a lot of things in terms of if there is a psychological phenomena happening on the subjective level and we can see that it reliably correlates with some sort of neurological happening. Mm -hmm. There's something to that where you have two levels of analysis pointing to the same thing, that it strengthens the the theory, the idea, and and it gives us a better hold of, you know, what we're seeing. So on that front, that's great. But there is also this movement of completely reducing all Mm -hmm. of our subjective experience, all of this psychological phenomena to the purely physical. So that basically, I always find it kind of, um, we speak of an emotion, for instance, um, you're happy, you feel rewarded. And we know that you're probably secreting dopamine at that point or serotonin. There's utility to knowing what's happening neurochemically. But if we regard our entire experience as purely chemical and purely physical, and you can really start getting into kind of language about instead of trying to make somebody happy, we're trying to release dopamine in their brain. Mm-hmm. And that completely dismisses and disregards yeah. the subjective right. element, which I understand also the pull in that direction, because as a new science, relatively speaking, psychology is trying to ground itself in the empirical approach. and 
there's something very pesky about psychological phenomena that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we can't measure them properly, mm-hmm. right? So you, you almost have to rely on these physical measurements. But viewing our consciousness in that way, you know, speaking to this idea of biological determinism, that everything is purely determined by your genes or the action potentials in your brain. And that's, that's really all there is to it that robs you of your free will in this framework, mm-hmm. right? Your freedom to perceive reality, deliberate, and make decisions as a free agent really it reduces all of that to just electrical signals. I have a, a qualified happy note in, yes. in that regard. It may be hard to express uh, briefly. If you take an actual rich case of decision making, let's say I, I just purchased a ticket for the Bruce Springsteen concert in Broadway. And I'm so glad that uh, New York seems to be coming back, etc. So imagine you know, describing my mental life and uh, somebody comes along and says, well, you know, that's all reducible to a bunch of neurons firing, etc. What do you mean by that? You couldn't possibly reduce one to the other because the richness of the language on the psychological level or the interplay of the ideas there. Bruce Springsteen, is that concept going to be uh, found in in my nervous system? (laughs) Or what about the, the idea that these concepts, purchasing a ticket, what is purchasing? Purchasing is an economic activity which presupposes an economic system of exchange of money. The concepts that we use to characterize our mental life are embedded in a vast framework of ideas such that there's just no way that they could literally be reduced. You might find some loose correlations. But you can't possibly in any way capture the all of the interconnections that we find in the psychological domain. So if you're really going to believe in reduction, you've got to go all the way, which is um, the direction of, the, of Paul and Patricia Churchland. <laughs> Their view is known as eliminative materialism, Mm. which is the idea that you can't reduce these ideas on the psychological domain to the physical domain. What's really going to happen is that the psychological will slowly be displaced by the neurophysiological ideas. Now, this is an incredibly radical, crazy idea because what it means but it's been held by people. What it means is that someday we will go around, our descendants will go around. And if you ask me in that world, how do you feel today? I would say something like, well, neuron so-and-so is firing, uh, (laughs) et cetera. I would not at all describe anything akin 
to what I would now describe, how I would now describe my mental life. So you'll get something, the classic comparison is the relation of alchemy to modern chemistry. When thermodynamics was reduced to statistical mechanics, that was a genuine reduction because the concepts were genuinely linked. Once they were linked, you could derive the laws of one of the sciences from the laws of the other. That's reduction. But what happened centuries ago is that alchemy was thrown out. This is just, we don't think this way anymore. And the ideas of chemistry replace them. So if you're really going to have, quote, reduction, it's going to have to be elimination. And so that's, in a way, it's a more comforting thought because it indicates how radical you would have to be in order to believe in this doctrine that this will actually come to pass. Right. No, there's in this eliminative materialism, there's this idea basically that if everything is reduced to the physical, then it renders consciousness itself an illusion. And you do see people adopting this uh, more and more, even kind of in, you know, the popular beliefs, you hear these ideas of our experience, our life being a simulation, right? Where really the the real things that are happening are the electrical signals in the brain as they would be on in a computer. But the experience that we're having, our consciousness is a simulation the same way that what's showing up on the screen of a computer is really just a reflection of everything that's happening, all the electricity that's happening um, on the back end. So there's one element like that. And there's also this idea of thinking of just a brain in a vat, where really the truth of our reality is we have these brains floating around in this fluid and we have all of these chemicals, different levels and different concoctions happening in that state. And really that our consciousness is just an illusory reflection of that. And you, you have the popular Matrix movies, which are uh, an even stronger metaphor in that direction. We're literally, we're, what we were, were just, you know, um, brains in a vat there. But I see what you're saying where this is so radical that it, at least it's comforting that hopefully enough people will, will not go in that direction because there is something in psychological experience, however frustrating it is that you can't properly grasp it in a purely scientific, empirical sense, it would be a shame to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. It would be a shame to completely dismiss this because there is so much richness to conscious life, to our experiences. And I think really, I think one of the most fundamental things in giving weight and credibility to our conscious experiences and not thinking that things are biologically determined, it gives us a sense of responsibility. And I think that's, you know, on the one hand, responsibility is difficult and you have to live up to it. But really, I think it gives you a much better sense of worth and gives you a belief in what kind of impact you can have on the world and on reality, on creating your own reality and affecting the reality around you. Now, I wanted to go back to, you know, we started this conversation with 
these ideas of freedom as creativity and autonomy and liberation. And you started off by saying that you originally didn't think that these two areas were connected, but that you came to see that there is a lot that is connected in these two things. So can you share with us what you found, you know, is the tying thread here? Sure. Your remarks uh, led me to uh, think of some other ideas. Let me just mention, well, two. Uh, One, I think the brain in a vat has come up as a, a way to talk about skepticism that it has more to do with epistemology. How do we know that we're not brains in a vat? Right, right. Our experiences are exactly the same as they would be if we were in the real world. But the more interesting uh, thought that I had, and I mentioned it because in speaking with you, I think you've expressed this kind of idea before. If you're going to study anything, there's going always to be a difference between your studying your descriptions, your accounts, and that which you are studying and describing and explaining, etc. So your kind of uh, worry is to some extent not that well-founded. I didn't mean to put it that way. No, no, please. (laughs) You can't escape the fact that there'll be a hiatus between your description and what you're studying. So you uh, in actually trying to describe something you can't complain that you're not being true to it because there's still this hiatus between what you're describing and the description and the point is if it's the act of investigating or studying or describing there is by the nature of the activity a hiatus between the description and what is being described. I mean, it's just a kind of a no, no, but absolutely. There's this idea of, you know, construct validity here of, you know, we have this thing that we want to study this theoretical concept. And, you know, in the field of psychology, it's always a question of how do we operationalize it? Mm. What are we measuring? And it's always a second best to the thing in itself, really. So definitely I I, a hundred percent agree with you here that there's always going to be some sort of discrepancy between what we're studying and the way we can measure it or the way we can describe it or understand it. I get the hint yeah. there that you think it, it's a shame that we're not overcoming that. that. No, actually, if anything, I'm being, um, I could do without it completely. <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I'm kind of indulging uh, the empiricists who might be listening to this, who uh, <laughs> okay. who would have a harder time with uh, with not being able to get down to the exact details. But I myself, um, I'm comfortable with that. I think it's a level of an unknown. There's something when you're trying to study something. And if, you know, what we're saying is true, where you can only get so far, you'll never be able to grasp the thing in itself all the way. That means that there is an element which is unknown to you. And I'm very comfortable with leaving that room for mystery, if you will. Right. Because um, we can't know anything perfectly. But I hope the the empiricists listening are... If you think of of knowledge as some mystics and others do, as union with the subject, 
you think that's the goal, and then it seems to me that that's not the goal of study or experiment or you're not looking to fuse with the subject. You're, the activity is of a different nature. There's now, a separation I, I grant there. that there is a philosophical tradition that is one you're uh, trying to capture, but I guess my hard-headedness makes me a little skeptical here, I think. How do you th- see things? Well, uh, there's just that to study the other is not to become the other. <laughs> okay. So rather not this fusion, but yes, this separation and this relationship of observer and observed. Yeah. There's a difference between the description and that which is described. I mean, it's just a very maybe a simplistic point, but uh, I wonder if I'm missing something by insisting upon it. No, I, under- I understand completely. There, what I was, you know, trying to point to is this idea of even when you do have this relationship of the observer and the observed, the observer does want to, is striving for a sense of pure clarity of the observed, right? Still having the separation exist, but this idea of having the observed fully known, right? Fully understood and not leaving any part of the puzzle unknown. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's the sense that I was trying to get at where there's always going to be a part of the puzzle that we can't fully understand. That may be true. Yeah, I mean, it may be that certain subject matters are always going to be partially hidden from our efforts to capture them in some right, way. Right, right. And then just, like, you know... Const- Ding an sich, constant in itself. Yes, yes, exactly. And then there's this distinction of, you know, what can we observe and describe and and grasp? And there is the essence of the thing that's always going to be out of reach. And just to speak to this idea of psychology and consciousness and our free will and how it interacts with the world around us, there is an element of at least psychology that you're not going to be able to fully describe and grasp. And that's what I was pointing to where biological determinists and this movement to reductionism, I think has this underlying assumption that we can perfectly understand consciousness at some point. We just haven't gotten there. And that's what I disagree with. You mean that if we take human behavior down in our explanations to the uh, neural level, we at least can get a full understanding of what's going on there. So in a sense, we've changed the subject. Uh, we <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> right. really grasp the, the person in his or her full personality or consciousness. So we had better look at something that we can understand. Right. Uh, I, I think that's remainder. what people are doing. And I don't completely agree with that approach. Mm-hmm. I think there is an element of uh, of consciousness that's always going to be out of grasp. And I think that's okay, <laughs> is essentially what I'm getting at. There's an extremely important aspect of the reductionist issue. It's essential on 
any conception of freedom that we require for free will, that our behavior reflects our desires, our beliefs, our values, that, in other words, these mental states have causal efficacy, that they explain what we are doing. After all, if they don't, then in what sense could we possibly be talking about our freedom? Now, okay, well, is there any problem with believing that our desires, our beliefs, and the like are causally efficacious to our behavior? Well, the threat comes from physicalism. Now, physicalism has a variety of meanings, but the one central doctrine of physicalism, which strikes a lot of people, including me, as quite plausible, is known as the causal closure of physics. It's the idea that any physical event, which would include human behavior, that might be an expression, we hope, of a desire or a value or a belief, any physical act, if it has a cause at all, must have a physical cause. Now, that's really not that unacceptable. After all, what is it saying? It's saying that pure minds, just thinking things, can automatically bring about changes. And so it's basically another way of rejecting what's sometimes called psychokinesis, that just by my thoughts I can uh, change the world. Or um, the idea that it also requires us to reject Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. You may remember Clarence, the angel who came down from heaven in order to help uh, Jimmy Stewart. Um, and Clarence was able to bring about changes in the world. Well, Clarence is presumably is an angel, and an angel is an immaterial <laughs> being. And um, according to the causal closure of physics, it cannot be that a purely spiritual, immaterial being can in itself bring about changes. All right, so we have this idea that mental states uh, can be uh, causally efficacious. Well, why couldn't we have both mental states causally efficacious alongside physical states being causally efficacious? After all, causal closure of the physics says only that behavior has to have a physical cause. It doesn't say that it cannot have also a mental cause. So why can't we have, live comfortably with a kind of a compatibilism between the mental and the physical? Our behavior is the uh, joint result of a mental stream of events and a physical stream of events. We have uh, causal sometimes called overdetermination in the world as it is. Consider a firing squad, two independent shooters each shoot poor Jones to death. So we have two causes independent of one another. Couldn't that be our model for the relationship between the mental and the physical? Well, some people say no, because that is to treat them on a par. And don't we also think that the physical has a certain priority over the mental? Our mental life depends upon our brain, our physical activity. It couldn't exist without it. Whereas our, in principle, uh, there could be brain activity without any mental activity. 
So um, you have that asymmetry. Or worse, there's a doctrine that's even more radical known as epiphenomenalism, according to which our mental states have no causal efficacy. They are simply byproducts of physical or neurological activity. And so the causal compatibilist has to find a way to respond to those sorts of concerns. I might mention in passing here that there have been two thinkers of recent times who've argued in favor of, uh, argued against causal compatibilism. One of them is Daniel Wegner in the book Illusion of Conscious Will, where he argues for the illusion of will, that our decisions really are not causally efficacious at all. And then there is the uh, psychologist or psychoneurologist, Benjamin Libet, who has presented what he takes to be uh, decisive empirical evidence that decisions are not, are simply epiphenomena. He claims that when a person decides, that is not the initiation of the physical activity leading to behavior. The initiation has already taken place. What's going on here is that the nervous system starts on its, uh, on its road to behavior. And in the course of proceeding, it casts off this uh, epiphenomena of a decision and as well as leading to behavior. But that decision is not really doing anything. Now, these are serious challenges. Personally, we don't have the time. I don't believe they're decisive at all. I think there are ways of challenging both Wagner and Libet. But let me present what I think is the beginning of the key to this, looking at something outside the sphere of human behavior. Suppose um, I have been having problems with mice, and you heard I've managed to solve them. You say, how'd you do it? I said, well, I have this little device. It's a spring, and you hold it up, and it's very sensitive. The mouse comes in and zap. So what I've described then is a mechanistic account in which each stage leads to the outcome of the poor dead mouse. I could have alternatively answered your question, I set a mousetrap and it did the trick. Now, what is a mousetrap? A mousetrap is a de defined uh, teleologically or functionally in terms of its desired outcome. And you don't specify. If I say I did it by using a mousetrap, that's true, isn't it? But it does not really elaborate the me actual mechanics of it. But they can exist certainly side by side. The mechanistic explanation that I offered first, alongside the functional explanation in terms of a mousetrap, and they're both true. So there's no real contradiction between them. But let me just take this one step further. You might say, what do mousetraps have to do with human behavior? Let me move to organisms. Take a cricket. The cricket has a feathers. On the feather, there are these little appendages called cirque. And what, what do these things do? Well, you can look at them neurologically as 
a neurologist have, and you can characterize what's going on inside the uh, circus, and uh, you will see, what will you see? You will see firings and not firings. You'll see a, um, the word escapes me at the moment, the, uh, a sequence of these, um, and that will tell you really very little about what's going on in terms of the cricket's life. But you could come to learn that the pattern of these firings and absences of firings actually reflect the changes of wind to temperature. So a wind velocity and direction. So what is happening here is that the mouse's tail is actually mapping and is encoding wind direction that goes then goes through the nervous system and the cricket we notice responds appropriately to those changes we now have kicked the thing up from a purely neurological account to one in terms of information processing the um, cricket is actually processing information information or encoding and then decoding are key stages on the way up all the way to explanations in terms of psychological or mental states. Those require, of course, all sorts of sophisticated things unavailable to the cricket, like language, consciousness, etc. But that's the beginning of a defense of causal compatibilism, which has to be true if we are to have free will at all. But going back to okay. yeah, to your idea of autonomy and liberation and how they relate to freedom as creativity. Yeah, autonomy is, is a component. I think of it as a component of, of freedom. By the way, freedom is a concept that's you know so wide-ranging. We've narrowed it to free will because when we think of free will, we think of it in relationship to determinism and that kind of narrows the field but of course there are whole dimension whole areas of inquiry about the nature of freedom social freedom freedom of religion press and those so-called negative freedoms freedom from domination by others and that whole dimension is is something that we're not touching so if uh, we put to one side the power idea of freedom, which is what's challenged by determinism, right? Determinism appears to challenge the idea, if it's true, that uh, we have uh, the power to do or decide differently from the way we actually do. We're, in a sense, constrained to do what we do. But if we look at the other dimension is the uh, dimension of autonomy. What we also want to be the case over and above this power is that whatever we do do really emanates from us. It is a choice that comes not from my parents, my background, or some person that is controlling or constraining me, but that it comes really from me. So we have this idea of uh, ourselves as being the genuine source of our decisions and the like. And that's what our autonomy really consists in. But if you really follow through with that idea, 
it runs into some serious problems. The self, as most people think of it, is that which we are directly acquainted with when we feel and think and act. We think of it as the kind of inner subject. But it's the inner subject of our passive states as well as our actions and decisions. So it doesn't play necessarily a role only in uh, the free freedom context in which we think of it as uh, being an agent, self as an agent, but the self can also be uh, passive. And what has to be the case in order for this agent to be uh, genuinely in charge of his or her life? Well, there are a variety of background conditions that we don't have to worry to enumerate in detail. We have to be competent. We have to have relevant skills, uh, intelligence, memory, capacity to uh, gain knowledge, uh, various uh, physical activities and skills, a whole bunch of competence conditions. There are beyond that a whole bunch of integrative conditions. A person cannot be in control of his or her life if it's not integrated in fundamental ways. For example, my intentions should be ones I form on the basis of my motives. My my desires and my values and my commitments should motivate my intentions. I should find myself intending to do those things which fulfill my desires, etc. There's that kind of integration here. If I find myself choosing to do things that have nothing to do with what I want or believe, then I'm not fully integrated. Uh, it also has to be the case that when I look at my motives, the things that move me to act, my desires or commitments, et cetera, they have to appear reasonable to me. These are reasonable ways of behaving. It's hard to define the right relation between people where one is exerting some influence on the other that would allow for or rule out autonomy. You have to think of this as a spectrum. At the one end, you have slavery, the actual complete enslavement of one human being by another, which is clearly antithetical to the very opposite of autonomy. But if you look at the other end of the spectrum, consider an example. You come up to me and say, hey, I saw a great movie last night. And I say, oh, thanks. I'll go see it. So now I have accepted your advice. So you are, in some sense, influencing me but obviously, that's a sense of influence on which, which is perfectly compatible with my autonomy. I don't become enslaved by you. I didn't have to take your advice. I took your advice for a good reason. There. So these represent uh, extremes. And the problem is finding something in between uh, where the line can be drawn. And the truth of the matter is that there is no sharp line. Somewhere in the middle, for example, would be the influence exerted by our parents or people who were our young caregivers who influenced us before we were self-aware 
And we just unconsciously or naturally adopted certain prejudices or values. And it's, of course, up to us to reconsider them. But as adults, uh, this influence would persist. So this is just an example of something that falls in between to give you a flavor of what would be involved if you were to explore this spectrum. Now, besides this, and we remember that, that there's a certain integration that a autonomous person must uh, possess. I talked about that earlier. What else is needed? Well, according to uh, Frankfurt and other theorists of his ilk, the real key here is harmony, internal harmony. More specifically, the full satisfaction, acquiescence to our wills. That is to say, I look down upon the kind of person that I am, what sorts of things move me to act. And I will either be accepting of, approving, be satisfied with, or I won't. Now, of course, you have to suppose that I've considered this rationally and independently. But after this kind of reflection, if I came up with the result that I'm a great guy, um, everything's hunky-dory, then this kind of a harmony is uh, constitutes for Frankfurt the essence of autonomy. The idea harks back to at least two major historical precedents, the Stoics, ancient Greece, uh, and uh, Spinoza, who uh, had very uh, similar kinds of ideas. But it is subject to significant difficulties. One really very obvious one is, where did this acceptance come from? Suppose, for example, I am really a victim of control, maybe unbeknownst to me, by another being or beings who caused me to feel harmony satisfied with myself. You might think that this is crazy, but look at um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. That's precisely what's going on there. The people are kept in place by making their lives quite pleasant for them. They have nothing to complain about. So all you have to do is to throw in the further uh, happiness with the way they are, the way, what's moving them to act. If they're completely content with themselves, they are autonomous. Well, it's obvious that there's something missing if they're really being controlled by other beings. So you still have to deal with uh, that kind of uh, objection. Uh, there has to be some appropriate connection, like just accepting advice from somebody, that would preserve your autonomy, and Brave New World certainly uh, does not. Now, another problem with the harmony type of account is, and this is really central to my rejection of the idea of autonomy as self-governance. I use this example to explain what I have in mind. Imagine somebody who is um, suffering from uh, social anxiety disorder. He lacks harmony, to be sure. But the important element that is important for the point that I'm now making, that autonomy is not self-government, is that in a deep sense, he is acting in accordance with what he actually is. His self is governing his behavior. 
Imagine him to be someone who unfortunately lives a life in which he has to uh, interact with many people. Maybe he's a, a teacher or whatever. So he's constantly on the alert. He's uh, involved in all sorts of social relationships. And he finds them threatening. He finds them uncomfortable. He's, he's, uh, he just uh, spends much of his life addressing and dealing with this unfortunate affliction. Now, why should we think that this is not really who he is, namely a fearful human being? It seems to me that if you're looking for what a person really is, what you have to look for is the central aspects of the person that overall best explains that person's life, that person's decisions, etc. And it seems clear to me that, or I constructed a case in which this fundamental fear is central from an explanatory point of view to what this person does, why he is the way he is, how, how he behaves, why he behaves and the way he behaves. So that it is central it seems to me to be undeniable. Now, people tend to resist that idea. They um, say, well, this couldn't be the real person. Underneath that real self is some kind of other self yearning to be free. Well, it's certainly true the person is unhappy with himself, but he is unhappy with himself. He's not unhappy with somebody else. To be sure, his actual self does not reflect his ideal self. And so he wants to be liberated in order to express not who he is. We know who he is. Sadly, he's a fearful person. He wants to be able to express his ideal self. And our ideal self often don't line up with our actual selves. So this idea that some philosophers have of that yourself is really the same as your ideals. The truth is that we very often are not expressing our ideals. We fall short we, of our ideals. We fall short. Yeah. So we must accept the difference between what I really am now and what I would ideally like to be. And what I ideally am now may not be what I ideally like to be. And so I think of it as something that's holding me back that I wish to be liberated from. That's where the idea of liberation comes from. And this is very pervasive. Uh, I use the expression backward directed states. There are a whole bunch of states that we are in which are backward directed in the sense that they are recalcitrant to learning from new experiences. So we're blocked at a certain level. But sometimes it's not a matter of, of neurosis or disorder. Sometimes it's even the nature of our personalities. There are certain character traits. Shapiro talks about rigid personalities or impulsive personalities. These are traits that are virtually inborn, he thinks, that there's certain sets of uh, characterological components that are associated with temperaments that you pretty much have at birth and that are, that are restrictive. 
to uh, change, you have to really struggle at it. So even our um, our physical nature, our or at least our, our temperamental nature that we're provided at birth, youth, really can hold us back. At the core of my idea of autonomy as liberation is also the idea of engagement with the world as it is, involving a kind of objectivity, seeing the world for what it is and being able spontaneously, actively to engage with it or those facets of it that are relevant to your desires and your values and your ideals. There is a reflective component, remember. I've mentioned this at several points. It must, of course, be true that you have reflected on the sort of person that you are and that your values and your ideals that you would like to be realized are ones that you reflectively endorse. Reflection that is rational and independent. Now here, let me uh, talk a little bit about this independence. When we think of it of an autonomous adult, we think of a person who typically has been brought up with a certain value system, set of inculcated attitudes and values, and uh, is, accepts them until at some point the person begins to reflect, think about the world. Uh, I remember being brought up and the people behaved, my family behaved as if uh, black people were not entitled to the same rights as white people. And uh, I, as a kid, of course, I just assumed this is the way things are. But then I began to reflect and reconsider. And then I found good reasons to reject what I had been taught to believe. And I changed accordingly. So I reflected. And now I have independent reasons, reasons separated, separate from what I've uh, been brought up to believe, uh, to endorse a, another way of life. Now, sometimes we're prevented both from reflecting rationally and from acting on our reflections, being engaged in the world, and we need help. I found very interesting years ago the work of, um, I forget his first name, Beck. He's really the father of cognitive psychotherapy. And he talks about being uh, blocked at a certain point in your learning mechanism. You, you adopt at a certain, perhaps because of a traumatic experience, but you adopt a certain perspective, point of view, attitude, and you cannot change. You cannot relearn that. And you might need psychotherapy. He called it cognitive psychotherapy to distinguish it from the Freudian style because you're basically relearning. Those are the sorts of things that we might need in order to provide this spontaneous form of engagement. So um, the ideal of unfettered connection to the world, active engagement, guided by the world, as opposed to the distortions that we might uh, bring to it that hopefully we can uh, remove. In other words, to use my 
metaphor here. We want to be liberated from ourselves. Hence, hence the title of my right. book, Liberation from Self. That's the basic idea. We, in a weird kind of way, autonomy, which is a Greek word meaning uh, rule by self, is a misnomer for what we're really looking for when we're looking for personal autonomy. Another very important thing I might forget to bring out is this idea of personal autonomy is really a Western idea. Many cultures regard it as alien. I recently uh, read a wonderful book by... um, I forget his name. He's a philosopher and a, a psychoanalyst, MD psychoanalyst, uh, who uh, wrote a book of, about the um, Crow Indian nation and how the um, what the U.S. government horribly did to them really uh, destroyed their whole culture by killing off the bison, which they uh, relied upon as essential to their way of life. And the head of the Crow, Jonathan Lear is the, is the guy I was thinking of. The, the head of the Crow Nation said, after this, nothing happened. This is his way of describing that this was the end of life for the Crow Nation as a group. And the idea of an individual is, is something that's really subordinated to the group in such a society. And very often happily so. you know. Uh, autonomy is not for everybody. I mean, some people <laughs> find their happiness as in subordination to a group. They don't need their independence, another idea associated with autonomy. Right. So there's a lot there that I would love to unpack. First, you know, I'm getting the sense from you that autonomy is better defined rather than purely self-governance, that Autonomy is the ability to manifest our our best potential, really. The our positive potential, our being able to realize our ideals, so to speak. Now there's and recognizing those ideals through uh independent reflection. Right, right. Not being coerced to pick up on mm-hmm. different ideals, right? Not being culturally conditioned mm-hmm. to take upon ourselves certain yeah. ideals that maybe aren't really arising from within. Now, right. yeah. there's... Can I just amplify one thing before I forget? That's a very good point. The concept of uh, independence is uh, another concept very much closely linked to autonomy. To be autonomy is to be, in some sense, independent of, of other things. And, and it plays a role, in my view, in terms of the independence of our reflection on ourselves. When we think of, of our own personal ideal, we are not autonomous if those reflections are themselves product of some other being who is controlling our lives, a demon, a demon (laughs) neurologist or hypnotist or what have you. Uh, It has to be through our own independent, uncoerced reflection. That's where independence plays a crucial role. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, of course, of course. So there's, you know, this is speaking to a very serious question that, you know, the depth psychologist tried to Mm -hmm. answer. And this idea that we aren't masters in our own house, right? Mm-hmm. The 
the kind of negative temperaments or emotional experience, such as fear, social anxiety that you mentioned, right? There's this idea that they are arising from the self. They're, it's also not maybe the right way to look at the self is only purely the positive aspects yeah, of ourselves, right. right? We do have these negative things that Carl Jung called the shadow, right? right All of yeah, the, exactly, yeah. the negativity or the negative potential within us that in a sense yes. needs to be recognized, integrated, and just to make sure that it doesn't control us, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are situations where, where that negative aspect can completely govern our lives. And then you know, maybe we're self-governed, but are we autonomous in the sense that we can manifest our positive potential in the world? Not, mm-hmm. not so much. So, so there is that yeah. element of being aware of all aspects of the self and really defining what it means to us to, to be autonomous in the sense that we can work towards our ideals work towards recognizing, defining, and manifesting our ideals. And now there's this other element of how can we ever be purely autonomous or, or separate really, or independent because we are, you know, we are products of our environment. We're products of our genes to a certain degree, right? So we are born into this world with certain temperament. We're born into... Are we free to be autonomous? Huh? Right, right, exactly. So so there is this... Um, tell me what you think about this, but I, I view autonomy as being able to manifest my nature in the healthiest, the most positive possible way. And... My nature is, you know, it's it's both my genes, my temperament. It's, I think, ideals are to some extent very much, they're very much derived from within because I think that if you're built in a certain way, certain activities, certain interests are going to call you, right? They're, they're sure. You're going to be inherently interested in them where others are not so. So being coerced into a profession, for instance, Mm -hmm. that's not for you, there's always going to be that resistance. So there is that element of our ideals come from within, but then there is this kind of flavoring, you know, you could call it of our culture Mm -hmm. and our environment and certain things that we do, we do pick up on, right? There's this idea of the superego in Freud's conception of the self where Mm the internalized voice of our parents and our culture and our customs. And it is something that becomes integrated into the self. But I think to a certain degree, that's okay and still allows us to be autonomous. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, uh, first of all, my view of autonomy is a very different from Kant's view of autonomy. Kant was uh, concerned to find a way to preserve the objectivity of morality, but at the same time to do it that also preserves the autonomy of the individual. You didn't want the individuals to be subordinated to something outside of themselves. Autonomy requires not being subordinated, even to God. Morality should not be uh, defined by what God wills. 
his way of doing it was quite ingenious. Uh, he uh, characterized uh, autonomy in terms of the self-legislation. Each human being legislates morality for him or herself, but it has the same nature in all of us because we all have a rational nature. Now, this is, this is an inc incredibly important historical idea, but I'm not concerned to preserve morality through my views on autonomy. I take seriously the same fundamental idea of Kant that we have to preserve individual autonomy, but that means that we have to allow the uh, possibility of any ideal being adopted by a an agent. Yes, it has to be certifiable rationally, but I don't preclude the possibility that a person's ideals could actually be immoral in nature. That doesn't automatically entail that the person is not autonomous. The individual chooses his or her ideals. That is important to autonomy, I, I would think. There are some interesting puzzling cases here. I describe um, a per person, uh, say a woman who's lived um, all her life uh, sheltered from much of the world, but is thoroughly content with the way she is and her life. And um, she might even be re reflect on it, but she doesn't see anything as uh, problematic. Now, what if this a woman had a, uh, as a child, a tremendous musical talent that was never developed. And now it's really too late to do that. That would be very sad. But this uh, a woman is not aware of that. She does not see any lack in her life, let's suppose. But we see what might have been as it were. So uh, th those are interesting cases. Would we want to think of her as autonomous as as is possible in spite of this lacuna. I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to throw it out for consideration. But in any case, any rational review should be one that is conducted fairly, openly, and independently. If you formulate your ideals accordingly and they cannot be realized even through cognitive psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, whatever, then it may turn out that autonomy fails. We're not autonomous through no fault of our own. Yeah, I very much agree with this idea of not having a purely Pollyanna view of human nature of the self because there is this possibility always for for us to be our own worst enemies, right? In the case right. of the addict who doesn't want to be, that kind of experience is, I do believe that in that, that situation, there is an ideal version of yourself that you have in mind, however blurry, right? But there is this intimation that you're not everything that you could be and you could be mm -hmm. more, you could be manifesting something more in, in your world. And being your own worst enemy in this case and being very much, you know, in shackles, very much not free mm -hmm. <laughs> because your baser desires in this case are, mm -hmm. uh, are holding you down. And I think it's really important to recognize that that negative potential exists. And if you don't recognize it and face it head on and 
learn to be in relationship with it and learn to put it in its place, really, to understand where certain fears or certain urges are coming from in the case of addiction. If we'll continue with this idea of what unsatisfied needs are you trying to satisfy in this unhealthy way, right? And address it in a very conscious manner to then gain some autonomy, right? And to gain the ability to manifest your your positive potential. Because I think just saying um, manifesting your potential doesn't do the idea justice because there is a lot of negative potential that we can also bring into the world. So that's on one hand. And you know, there's uh, this idea in, in psychotherapy, there's this humanist psychologist called Carl Rogers. Oh, yeah. And he, he had this idea of unconditional positive regard, right? That the therapist should regard the patient or the client, as he would put it, as purely positive regard uh, with no conditions, no matter what the person, you know, thinks, does, says. And this more recent uh, psychologist on the scene right now, uh, Jordan Peterson, he he had this idea. He said that he had a problem with this idea of unconditional positive regard. And he said that what he did instead with his clients was he would create an alliance with the part of the person that wanted the best for that person. And I think that that idea aligns with your conception of our ideals, right? There is that ideal self that we can become. And instead of giving the patient unconditional positive regard, he would create an alliance with the person's ideals, with that part of yourself that does want the best for you and does want to manifest the good in you. So, Right. You know, there are some people who think of autonomy as self-realization, another familiar idea. And um, I was thinking of our earlier discussion about some of these compatibilist philosophers who, uh, who don't take the view that I take, but they have this idea of freedom as um, not being linked at all with power so that they don't have to worry about determinism because the only worry about determinism is that it eliminates power. What's the big deal about power? Part of what they're saying is that if you have somebody in whom there is a perfect alliance between ideal and the actual, somebody who is fully realized, as it were, what more do you want? That's about as uh, free an agent as you could imagine. Even if the person cannot act otherwise, he doesn't have <laughs> to be able to act otherwise. When he reflects on what he's doing and what he is, he has no objection. He's happily self-realized. It's just an interesting aside to link to discussions. So as we started, we, we said that these two areas are very much related, yeah. uh, you know, freedom and creativity and liberation and autonomy. And I was hoping, you know, before we wrap up, if you could 
kind of share with us totally. the, yeah. the the reflections that you've had, um, you know, before this conversation of how you've realized that these things are very much connected. Autonomy as liberation, uh, just to summarize, is liberation from various psychological or inner circumstances or and or environmental circumstances which inhibits our unfettered interaction with the world or those uh, objects, things, persons that uh, we need to interact with in order to uh, express our desires, fulfill our values, uh, honor our commitments, etc. Again, these uh, ideals are formulated reflectively, independently in ways I've spelled out with adequate knowledge, etc., where we've been able, ideally, to remove those uh, uh, states, those sort of backward-directed states, as I call them, states which in which our learning has been blocked and we uh, need to be free of. So that's basically what liberation amounts to. Now, the in the case of, of free will as creativity, what you have is liberation or freedom from a c- false conception of ourselves. Liberation, you know, the autonomy stuff is the person being liberated. Here, uh, you're, in the case of free will, you're being liberated from a false conception of yourself as being, um, if the world is deterministic, unable to uh, act other than the way you actually do act. You are a pawn nature the laws uh, dictate uh, what uh, must be, and you have no control over that. By the way, something that I never did point out, uh, very fundamental, I said that I didn't believe in determinism. So what? how do I modify what I just said for a world that's not deterministic? Well, yes, determinism is not something I accept, but that doesn't mean that I don't believe that there are some laws deterministic laws just means that not everything is determined, not all human behavior is determined. But it may well be that our behavior and our decision-making too falls under uh, universal deterministic laws. When they do, we should not be worried that just in virtue of that fact that we are powerless to do otherwise. Remember, it is we who in the case, very special case of certain sorts of uh, decision-making, it is we who determine what the laws are eventually through our uh, decision-making powers. So we are not pawns of, of nature. The creativity idea is more of the idea of removing a barrier, not from us, but from the way other people force us to think about us. That is to say, the person who worries about determinism worries that we've lost something if our decisions are determined, if um, they operate under law. And as I said earlier, um, I reject that way of thinking. I, I think that um, we 
create the laws as we go along by making the decisions we do. So this is a a kind of a a liberation from a a mistaken but deep-rooted conception that, you know, you're not really, you don't feel yourself to be unfree when you make a decision normally, I mean, under normal conditions. And yet these incompatibilists, they come along, they tell you, no, 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 you may think that way, but there's a law that uh, that governs your decision. And then all of a sudden, oh my God, I really uh, am a, a pawn in nature. And what I'm saying is that that's a mistake. So to kind of link the two, you're liberated thus from a mistaken, by my lights, conception of you in relationship to the world. In the autonomy situation, the liberation is in a way a more real liberation because what you're looking for in wanting to be autonomous is to be liberated from the actual straitjacket provided by these forces that prevent you from realizing your ideals. So that's kind of the way I link the two up. Amazing. And to finish, I have two questions. One, if our listeners today were to take one thing away from our conversation, what do you think is the most important thing here? <laughs> and that's that's hard to uh, <laughs> to summarize. But that's all. I mean, I only said one thing. That's no, <laughs> I know that we said we said quite a lot. <laughs> but um, my meaning is what. What do you think the important essential takeaway is from from this debate of free will, determinism, autonomy? What would you want someone to walk away with today, understanding well, in better? A, in a slogan, a sentence, uh, we are more masters of our fate than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I very much agree. I think... Uh, Good. Yeah, no, I think we we have tremendous potential to shape our realities. And recognizing that is at first scary because it puts a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. But, yes. but I think after you get over that initial fear, it's so inspiring and so hopeful. And you understand how much you really are. Um, you know, the creator of your destiny. And speaking of that link between freedom and responsibility, remember it was Sartre who said that we are condemned to be free. Yes. We we have no choice but to take responsibility for what we are. And in so choosing, we choose for the world. Right, right. And Jung also addressed this. One of his famous quotes is that if... To paraphrase, if we don't construct our own world, if we don't decide our own story, our own narrative, then whatever happens to us, we'll call it fate. But really, it's the absence of our own our own agency uh, in this case. Okay, and kind of just the last question: what what advice would you have for someone who is thinking about exploring a career in philosophy? 
Well, it's a great life. Uh, well, the, well, the academic life in general is uh, fabulous. Uh, you have so much free, speaking of freedom, you have so much freedom. You're really your, your own boss. You can spend so much time delving into issues which presumably you're interested in because you undertook the study of it. Of course, you have to like teaching, which I very much did. So uh, as far as philosophy, uh, philosophy is becoming very um, scholastic in recent decades. Well, people are becoming overly specialized. It's very hard to just look at the literature that's being produced. It's um, much of it. I mean, the, the standards are very high. I happen to be, as I think I've told you, I'm an executive editor of the Journal of Philosophy, and, and we get um, really very fine contributions. On the whole, the quality is unsurpassed far better than when I went into philosophy, to be perfectly honest. But people are, are working in very narrow spheres so that sometimes it's really hard to find readers for papers because the community of readers is a very small community. I mean, I love philosophy. I'm not sure I would be happy going into philosophy in the present climate, however. Interesting. It makes, it makes great demands on somebody who is interested, you know, in, not in just teaching I mean, as, as a career, but really wants to become a good philosopher, make contributions to the field. It makes great demands. And um, I would say to think carefully about it and to maybe put your feet into it slowly uh, so that in the event that it turns out not to be you, for you, you can can get out. I hate to end on such a negative note. But, uh... <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good to, um, you know, to hear your perspective on the field and, uh, you know, its current state and, and uh, you know, perhaps what could be improved in the future. Speaking to that idea of uh, how much, uh, you know, written material exists today and how specified it is we spoke yeah. uh, before we, we started the recording, I asked you how much you read. And just because I'm overwhelmed myself mm. by everything that I'd like to read and, you know, not having enough time to, and there's the added complexity of having so much written material, uh, highly specialized coming out and yeah. almost it demands that these silos are created, right? These very specialized narrow fields because you can't read everything. And it's if you're yeah. um, on a specific topic, then you're probably going to read what's being uh, generated in that field just because yeah. of, you know, time. And just, that creates yeah. these kind of narrow, narrow right. pockets. But okay, but we'll, we'll leave it on the note. Warning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, warning. And we'll leave it on the note of... Um, you know, striving sober towards note. sober note, but no, but I'm, what I meant was uh, on this hopeful note of, uh, or, or call for interdisciplinary kind of approach to ha always have yes, that in mind. Yes, it would be wonderful. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, when I was studying philosophy, not that long ago, uh, there were philosophers who uh, could think very broadly and uh, they excited everybody. 
Right. I, I see fewer of them nowadays. Well, thank you for indulging my uh, psychological <laughs> perspective today. I think that oh, was one step in that direction. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. And thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>